So tonight I'd like to speak about compassion, which I think is a good topic as we move back into the world and begin to apply these teachings. You could turn it down just a little bit. Although sometimes when I hear myself say we're moving back into the world, you know, it's sort of like we haven't been in the world here somehow, you know, but really um, this is the world. And we've had to experience ourselves in very much the same way that we do in many ways when we're back in our lives, all the difficult emotions and feelings and watching our own minds and the difficulty of our minds. I knew for a few days that I was going to be speaking about compassion. And as I continue to listen to Stephen's morning discourses, I realized that the compassion was starting to take on a new relevance for me. Slowly, slowly, it kind of dawned on me this morning, particularly in listening to Stephen talk about self and society, that if we're really not going to transcend into a mystical reality or metaphysical reality, if we really are living our lives here in the conditionality of this world, then in some ways it makes compassion even more important. Like the compassion for us as human beings in this world facing what's true, facing the reality of this world. And I could feel this shift, you know, as I'm listening to the teachings this week, you know, this kind of coming back even more fully into my humanity. You know, any tendency that I have to want to go into this unified consciousness or this, you know, the, the uh, transcendental, transcendental reality that is somehow disconnected from here. I could feel how then I can also disconnect from my heart and from what's actually happening with myself in, in relationship to others. So bringing me more fully in connection with the first noble truth, that there is suffering in this world. The first truth, the first, first statement that the Buddha made after his awakening was to come into the understanding of the suffering in this world that we experience. And then, of course, the continued exploration of how to begin to become more free from the conditions that create that suffering for us in our own uh, mind and being. So coming into this humanity, and I know for myself that this practice has asked me, invited me to come back, come back, come back. You know, this tendency to want to leave, to escape, to disappear, to dissociate, or whatever it is, and to come back, come back, come back. And I remember I can trace the whole process of coming back into being more human, not wanting to, not wanting to be here. You know, and sometimes I think people use the meditation too as a way to leave the body so we don't have to actually be here in this conditionality. And so this invitation to return back, return back, return back to be here. And Stephen's teachings really reinforcing that and how the Buddha 
was pointing us back here to this world. So when we speak of compassion, this this awakening of the heart, in a way, which really is, you've probably heard, there's, it, often Buddhism is talked about having two wings, like two wings of a bird. On one hand, there's wisdom. On the other hand, there's compassion. So the wisdom that sees the way things are, the arising and the passing, and the transient nature of all things, that there really isn't anything to hold on to. And then the compassion for our human predicament. It makes so much more sense for me why it is the second wing, why it is the other wing. Because it's difficult, it's challenging to let go, to really let go into our wisdom. Compassion is a natural expression of an awakened mind. When the mind is awake, the heart opens. As Martine began to speak about, it's, a, it's an expression of love. Compassion is love. It's love that moves from the heart, that is turned towards the suffering aspect of life. Whereas metta is love that's turned towards the happiness, that's turned towards the, the wishing for us to be happy and well. It's an uplifting kind of, of, uh, of orientation. Whereas compassion is the same love. It is that love, but we turn it towards this suffering aspect, towards the world, towards all beings, towards our our own humanity. The literal translation of the word karuna, karuna is the Sanskrit word for compassion, the literal translation is experiencing a quivering or a tenderness in the heart, in the response, in response to being with pain. And I love that, and I I mention that each time I speak about compassion because it's the feeling, it's like the actual experiential feeling of the compassion is there's a kind of quivering which we feel when we, we allow the tenderness to be touched by the painful aspect. And when we're sensitive and we can feel, we can feel the, our heart. We can feel that, like we have to take a breath almost as we feel that and allow ourselves to be sensitive in that way. When we speak of true compassion, it means we have an unlimited compassion for the infinity of beings in this world, that our heart opens so wide that we, we can touch more and more beings of this world. On the wall over there, there's a, a Tibetan tanka of uh, Avalokiteshwar, the male archetype of the, the god of compassion. And in that, in that uh, painting, what looks like a halo from a distance is actually a thousand arms and a thousand hands. And every hand and every arm has an eye on it. So the hand and the arm. So there are 2,000 eyes. And this is to touch all the beings in the world and to see all the beings in the world, not to turn away, not to look, not to turn back, but to stay open. And I love the, uh, the symbol of the openness when I see the, uh, uh, the, the archetype of Avalokiteshwar. 
in that open way. You can feel it too as you're, as energetically as you open your arms and your heart is exposed in that way. Touching, hearing, seeing, feeling the pain of this world. This is from um, an abbess and a, a teacher in a Korean uh, monastery for 300 uh, Buddhist nuns. And this is from one of Martine's books, which used to be called uh, Walking on the Lotus Flowers, but I think it has a new title now, and I'm sure it's here too. This is uh, from Yongsan Sunim, and she says about compassion, she says, Great sadness means that when someone falls into a lot of suffering, we spend much energy to get them out of it. It also means that when sentient beings are sad, we are sad with them. When they cry, we cry with them. Great love means that when sentient beings are happy, we are happy with them. Being sad together, being happy together, This is great compassion. Great love means that we give great happiness. Great sadness means that we deliver people from their suffering. And again, we use this word sadness that came up today about the sadness, with a place of sadness. Because I think that we can so easily think that that somehow our meditation practice has something to do with getting rid of the sadness. And I know when I work with yogis sometimes on retreat, they, they, they don't have a very good relationship with their sadness. They think somehow that they're missing the point or they're getting distracted. But the sadness is very important to feel, to touch, to know, because in a way it's a doorway. It's a pathway to touching that which is difficult in ourselves and in, in others and in the world. I would say that the sadness, really touching our sadness in this way, is like moisturizer for the heart. You know, compassion. When we touch and we allow it and the compassion comes, it's the moisturizer, it's the juice in the heart. If we, you know, sometimes if we're just focusing on insight and just the clear seeing, and the empt, kind of the seeing through, the transient nature, and we're not really feeling and connected to our, our own heart and what's happening within the conditions of our own mind and, and life, we might feel a little brittle or a little cool, a little detached, um, maybe not quite so warm and full in ourselves. And as we let the feeling come in, as we let ourselves being, be touched, be moved by, by life and the conditions of life, this is the moisturizer we feel a little juicier. We let the feeling come in. We don't have to be detached. Sometimes the Buddhist practice gets this, you know, we have the sense that we're supposed to be removed. And, and Stephen's been addressing this, like being removed from the world somehow. This again, this sort of trans, transcendental experience of, of backing off. But I, I think really it's more of a coming in. It's a moving in, a moving towards the conditions, meeting, making contact with the conditions of life. Because otherwise, there may be some, you know, misinterpretation, uh, confusion, or even a little bit of fear, you know, about a fear of and resistance about being that engaged with life. And I think it's something that really has to be looked at in, in terms of what is our relationship there. 
as we open and allow the conditions to rise. Compassion does need to arise with understanding about the way things are. Nevertheless, we may feel the sadness, we may be in touch with the conditions of ourselves and people in our lives, the conditions of life, but yet without the understanding of the transient nature, that things are selfless, that there is unreliability in the conditions of this world, that there really isn't anything we can hold on to, What can happen is that we can remain in the realm of ordinary feelings. We can be, we could care about others, we can be in contact with others and be moved, but we could be holding on. Holding on, being attached to our outcomes, being attached to our demands, our expectations, what we want to have happen. And again, we get caught, we get caught in these ordinary kind of feelings of of sorrow and pity and uh, grief, but not a kind of grief, a healthy grief that we need to have when we're uh, mourning some sense of loss, but kind of a grief that we're actually stricken down because of our, our deep attachment to the way we want things to be. Or it may manifest, this grasping may manifest as kind of a self-righteousness. We get angry self-righteous anger. We get angry at the world and angry about things and the way they are. And again, it's not really compassion. This isn't really the compassion that the Buddha is speaking about and the great teachers are speaking about. That has grasping in it. It has selfing in it. And so we are going to feel some suffering element if there's grasping there in the pity, in the grief, in the sorrow, in the self-righteousness. And these feelings, when there's the grasping there as we come into contact with the world, this grasping is going to interfere with our capacity for wise action, for our capacity to respond appropriately in the moment to the situation with what's needed. Because we're caught, you see, we're caught in our own view, in our own uh, idea, which actually is very narrow, it's a, it's, there's a self-interest there. It's like, well, well, this is what I want. No, it's like, what's in it for me? This is a narrow kind of worldview. And when we are feeling true compassion, we really let our heart open and allow that whatever's occurring, the difficult feelings or the painful feelings, and open to them. We, it widens our view in a way. We were open to looking more fully at the way things are. When we have these emotions that are caught up in grasping, it's almost as if these emotions are covering up a deeper feeling of helplessness. Because if we're really honest with ourselves, we we are likely to feel how out of control everything is. And we feel helpless. And we don't want to feel our helplessness. It's a hard thing to feel, to go right to that place where we say, I can't do anything. I can't control this. That doesn't have to interfere with taking action. It's not a passive kind of falling into helplessness, but it's touching what's true that at a very fundamental level, we are helpless in the face of the way things are. 
One time I was on a retreat with uh, Sharon Salzberg, Joseph Goldstein, a few years ago here at Spirit Rock. And they're good friends with uh, Ram Das, um, one of the great teachers that many of us have uh, learned from and spent time with. And as uh, some of you may not know, Ram Das had a, a stroke, had a heart attack some years ago, and is, is fairly paralyzed, and it, he wasn't able to speak. He was a great speaker, great orator, great, great uh, teacher for many of us. And then he had the stroke, and it just shut everything down. And for a while, he couldn't. He, he's, he's okay, but he's pa- paralyzed and he's, uh, lost his, his ability to speak. And slowly, slowly, that started to come back a little bit, starting to be able to organize his thoughts a little bit better, you know, being able to talk a little bit more. But he came to visit Joseph and Sharon during this retreat. And they had to drive his van up. He had his attendant drive the van up, and he has all the uh, disability uh, mechanisms in his van. And they had a meeting in the council house over there. Ram Dass had to walk up the steps. And, And afterwards, Sharon... In one of her Dharma talks, she told a story about that meeting. It was very, very touching. She told the story about when Ramdas was leaving. She was watching him walk down the steps to get into the van. And he, she said he looked like he was in so much pain. Every step was like he had to be held, and every step it seemed like it was difficult for him to make the next step. And he was taking the next step, and he's grimacing and holding on. And the, the attendant was finally able to get him to the door of the van and then helping him up into the, into the chair. And all oh, this pain and grimacing. Sharon, you know, has known Ramdas a long time and was just feeling, oh, this agony, really. This is what Sharon was saying. So much pain to see Ramdas in this condition. And she was just feeling all oh, this sorrow and all this grief. And so finally, when she went up to the door and uh, window to say goodbye to him, she said, oh, Ramdas, how are you? You know, she's just like, and Ramdas looked at her and said, I'm fine. How are you? <laughs> and it was in that moment she just got it, that she had just got all caught up in how she imagined things were for him, her whole idea of how she wanted things to be for him, and her, her sense of how much pain he was in and agony and how horrible and this whole story, and actually none of it was true for him. He was fine. He had come to a place of being able to work with all of this in himself. And of course, because he has a body and a mind, you know, the appearance is that he's really suffering. And she was so struck by that because it was in a moment the mirror reflected back that this was about her. It wasn't about Ramdas. It wasn't about the person she was projecting all this onto. So this feeling, what's going on? What's really here? This helplessness. We can't change things. A lot of the time. We can't change a lot of things. We don't want to interfere with the action, the wise action. But where is that action springing from in us? Where is it motivated from? I think this is really what we need to really be, continue to explore if we want to make 
a difference in this world. Because otherwise, maybe we're feeding the same problems of more greed and and hatred and aversion and confusion. Because we're working with our own mind and our own heart so that we are more free, starting to see things more clearly, being a, um, a clearer agent for change, for making a difference. As we let go, our compassion manifests more and more as wisdom and compassion. Sometimes we might say compassionate wisdom or wise compassion. They come together. They're not separate. We can't can't make that separation. So we let go of our self-interests, our demands, our attachments. This is what starts to open. This is... This is one of the awakened qualities. It's not something that we find somewhere outside or we we kind of put it on or we learn and then become a more compassionate person. In the letting go, the heart expresses itself as love because we are in connection more and more. We're in contact with reality in the moment. And, and in that, there's a kind of, we call it love. Love is such an interesting thing. This love, love is some kind of openness in contact with the way things are. It's not a, something that's pulled back or, or cut off or separated, but it's a kind of open dynamism And again, maybe it's not a noun. Maybe it's a verb. It's one of the things I kept hearing all week. Maybe there aren't so many nouns, actually. (laughs) Maybe there's a lot more verbs. Loving. This loving capacity. Capacity to love. Capacity to be in contact with. My teacher, I've spent a lot of time with Sokni Rinpoche, one of the Tibetan teachers, who says, after the concept of self dissolves, the expression of that realization is compassion. And what that says is after the fixation of me dissolves, after the grasping dissolves, after this kind of narrow way of looking at the world and being in the world, when that starts to open up, the realization of that is compassion. natural, a natural expression. As all of you have, I also have been confronted with all of my attachments, all of my demands, all of my expectations, and because I'm keeping my mind open to seeing that, it's here. It's here. Many, many of my lessons have happened during my, year, my months and years in India, as I mentioned in my other talk, And I want to tell another little story about that. Some years I was going to Bodhgaya to to teach uh, retreats there every January. And outside of our temple, the monastery, where we taught, was a little um, chai shop, tea shop, tea stall. And the man who ran that tea stall uh, was Ram, Ram, Ramcharan. 
and he was there every year. Just a, a little kind of wooden bench with a kind of a, a, a awning over it, and, and he just had his little fire there, and he would make chai. With, he had his, had his milk and a few little sweets he sold there. Just a, a very poor Indian man who lived in the village, but he was there every year, and we would go out during our breaks, actually, to have uh, some chai uh, in, Ram, in Ram's tea stall and sit down and talk and watch the, what's passing by on the road. And over the years, his, his son started to grow up. And his son, as he was 14, 15, he would be taking over the chai stall. That was his, his lot. He would just take after his father. And, but because uh, his name was Sanjay, and because Sanjay was growing up with the Westerners, the Westerners who had come to the retreats, we had about 150 Westerners who would come in every January, and they would go to the tea stall and talk. And so Sanjay was slowly, slowly learning some English. By the time he was 15 or so, I could speak with him just a little bit. I, I didn't learn Hindi, mostly because most Indians speak English, so it didn't make it very conducive for me to learn Hindi. So finally I was able to speak with Sanjay just a little bit. And one day we sat down and we had this conversation, and I really wanted to know a little bit about his life. What he ate? What do you, what do you eat? Because he lived very poorly in the village outside of Bodhgaya. So he was able to tell me, he said, well, for breakfast in the morning, we have milk tea, and a chapati, you know, a little wheat, wheat cake. If there's milk, he said, sometimes no milk. So sometimes they were able to put milk in their tea, sometimes not. For lunch, they would have, that was their main meal, they'd have a, some rice, white rice, and a vegetable, one vegetable. And then for evening meal, they would have uh, maybe a little rice and tea again. And if they had some, maybe some curd or yogurt, and that was their, their, was their daily food. And listening to this, you know, it was like, how, you know, how can they, how can they subsist on this? You know, just so little, so little bit, if there's milk, if there's yogurt, you know. And I remember sitting there and just as I was sitting with him, my heart just opened in this compassion and this kind of quiet wondering this quiet questioning. Why? Why are things like this? Why is Sanjay living here in Bodhgaya, in this very poor village? Why am I living in one of the most expensive cities in the world? And I didn't have very much. You know, I was actually traveling with a backpack for many years and living very simply, and didn't have any, I didn't have a home for some years and no possessions, no furniture or, or anything. And so I had my clothes and some, you know, uh, I had some money I could get around. I didn't have that much. But I felt like a millionaire. I felt so privileged, educated. I had all of these privileges in my life, and it was like, why? Why? And so sometimes when we just sit and listen and let our hearts be touched, it's the mystery, the, the quiet wonderings of why. Why is there so much suffering? Why is it like this? And let, that, let our heart be touched in that way and going to that place where we can't answer, we don't know. But yet we can 
open to it and to allow those kinds of questions move. And not that I could do very much for Sanjay and his family. I mean, I, I still, I have, I've, I've gone, I went there for 15 years. I haven't been back for about seven years. But I try to um, get the family some money every year. And because it doesn't take much money to make it seem like a lot for them, um, I can give what I can, I have to give sort of a modest amount because it would seem so much to them, they almost wouldn't know what to do with it. So I would give them a gift of what, and, and the first time I gave him the gift, he said, this will buy our rice for the year. This will buy our rice for the year. He was totally indebted, and it was probably $50. But it was, it was, it was like $1,000 to him. So a little bit, you know, be able to do a little bit uh, for this one (laughs) Muslim family in India. So our practice is allowing our hearts to be touched, coming into our humanity, coming into the conditions of this world. It's interesting that the compassion, our compassion awakens by being with suffering. Joanna Macy calls this a tantric flip. By turning towards the suffering, our heart opens. It's the very thing we don't want to do. It's the very thing that we are conditioned to resist. The very thing we want to turn and run the other way. But the tantric flip is that as we move in, our mind awakens, our heart awakens. The compassion grows. We become stronger. We become more stable. We become more present. So our practice, we can take on a practice of using difficulties in our life to enhance our practice. It's really so counterintuitive because the conditioning is to resist, is to to turn away. But we can, we, t- we can take on the practice of using these difficulties because these practices, are, these, these difficulties are usually viewed as obstacles or inconveniences, right, to our practice. Uh, in fact, we may even disregard our practice when our life is difficult and when things are hard. We say, I can't really practice. There's too much going on. You know, and then we may, we may want to wait until times get easier, times gets better, and then, then I can sit. This is what the, the Dalai Lama, the Dalai Lama has uh, wrote about this. He said, if you can't practice when you are suffering because what it does to your mind, and you can't practice when you are happy because of attachment to your happiness, then there will never be a time when you can practice at all. I think that's pretty clear. Postponing our practice or, or even going into some kind of denial. Well, there's nothing happening. You know, living in kind of a semi-trance, kind of a little bit of sleep, and this sort of much a little bit more of a superficial kind of connection with the way things are, you know. Um, I want to read this little story. One, one friend tells a story 
My friend's father was a young child driving with his own father in a car on December 7, 1941. A sudden announcement came over the car radio. The Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor. Immediately, the father leaned over and said urgently to his son, don't tell your mother. <laughs> when my friend heard the story from his father, he thought, right, maybe, she would ho- maybe he hoped she would not notice any of World War II. <laughs> <laughs> a little like that, you know? Maybe we can somehow, you know, not know what's really going on. And, and sometimes, you know, there may be skillful reasons why we don't want to listen to the news or read newspapers. There may be times in our life where that may be the appropriate thing because we need some kind of break from that. We need to recharge. We need to have a little more, uh, less distraction, more, more time with our inner life. And we can make choices like that. But I think it has to be conscious, we even need to make conscious choices, be motivated. Why? Why? Why are we making these choices that we're making? We can take on a practice that says, I will not hold anything as an enemy. Inner and outer. When the Dalai Lama was asked if he gets angry at the Chinese, he said, Almost not. (laughs) Great response. So honest. Almost not. It's like, I think he's saying, there are enemies, but we learn not to hold them as enemies. There are people who do things that are very harmful, very hurtful, very violent, painful, but... We try to hold them not as our enemies. A practice that says, I will have an attitude of openness to all of life, even to that which is unpleasant. I will have an attitude of openness to all of life, even to that which is unpleasant. This is a kind of heroic compassion. We might say the compassion of a bodhisattva, Bodhisattva, bodhi means awake, awake being. Sattva means courage too. So it's a courageous being. A bodhisattva is a courageous being. This kind of heroic or courageous practice where we walk in to the suffering. This is my, one of my favorite poems from Naomi Shihab Nye, an Israeli Uh, No, sorry, um, American-Palestinian female poet. It's called Kindness. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved... All this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, 
you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrow and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. Then it's only kindness that makes sense. What else? What else can we do? Otherwise, we're just feeding and repeating and reinforcing and solidify the very things that are causing so much division and separation ugliness and pain in this world. I want to tell one more story. Um, When I was in India, one of my last trips there some years ago, my friend, I have a friend in, in, in England who is an activist and she has spent time in India, and she felt that I, we, we went together this time, and she felt that she wanted to, me to see even more of the painful side of India. She felt I was still skirting. You know, there was more, more I had to see. And so we were in Madras, and um, she had a, a young woman doctor friend who had had opened a, a neo, neonatal unit in the hospital. And uh, this was one of, a very radical thing to do in India and probably wouldn't have been able to happen much in the north, but in the south of India, it's a, a, a little bit more developed. And um, she, it was her life's purpose to save the babies. Because in India, the babies, um, if they're not healthy, if they're not well, if they're from uh, uh, poor families, many don't survive, and, and there's, they, they don't do a lot about that. So she wanted to establish this neonatal unit so that the babies that were born had a place that they could go, be put in these, um, incub- these uh, they weren't even incubators, they were made by a carpenter out of plexiglass with a heat lamp in it, so, so that the, the babies could actually be uh, treated by her with some of the new medicines. And, uh, and my friend Caroline was very interested in seeing what uh, this doctor had done. And so at twilight, when it was getting dark, we went to the hospital, the three of us, and I thought this was going to be difficult for me. I have avoided Indian hospitals as much as I can because it's kind of all out there. You know, everything is wide out, wide in the open. And um, 
that's not a strong uh, part, strong capacity that I have to be with that level of, of, of uh, pain. But I was in my heroic kind of, out, courageous kind of, like, hey, I'm going to go. And uh, went to the unit and walked in, and there were about uh, 15 incubators, these uh, simply made incubators with these little babies that had just been born. And uh, in the waiting room were the mothers, the Indian mothers. They were about 16, 17 years old. And the, uh, Caroline told me that this was very dire for these babies to be here because if the babies died, then these mothers, who were probably somewhat poor, would be thrown out of the family. Because if you give birth to a baby that isn't very healthy, then it somehow reflects on the woman, and then she gets uh, discarded. And so I was just kind of taking in all of this, you know, the babies that they were uh, very much only there because of this doctor who was so compassionate, the mothers who were in this very difficult situation, the, uh, uh, the whole hospital setting with uh, everything kind of out in the open. I could feel myself getting very weak at the knees. I wasn't sure, breathing, sort of taking it all in, seeing the babies, feeling the, all the conditions starting to rise. And walking around, Caroline was starting to walk around, and I realized I, I, I kind of hit my limit. Again, I, I couldn't really do this. And I could feel myself starting to get overwhelmed, and uh, as much as I had the idea of what compassion would have meant in this situation, to be strong and to be open and to be present, to be able to be here with the situation, appreciate what this doctor had done, I couldn't. So I walked out and went to the room. There was a place I could sit down. And I remember sitting down and I just started weeping, just started crying. And what happened was so beautiful because the, there, what happened was the compassion just started flowing for myself because of my own limitation, my own inability to be stronger, to be you know, who I really wanted to be in that situation. All this compassion just opened up, and then the compassion flew, uh, went out to the beings, the babies, the, all the people in the hospital, and I just sat there weeping with this the most open heart. And I reflected on the fact later that in the past, I probably would have said, okay, I've got to be strong, I've got to be upright, I've got to just stay here, this is what compassion is, this is how I'm supposed to be, you know, and just kind of made myself strong, which would then would have been a whole contraction of my heart, you know, not really being connected, not really being engaged. And it was one of those tantric flips. I contacted the compassion in a way that was totally unexpected. And then when Caroline was finished, we walked out, and it was, it was um, so, so valuable for me to have this experience because I realize that it doesn't mean that I have to be this person who can go out in the world and take charge and make this you know, big impact and difference in the world. That's, that compassion is expressed in a very personal way. It's very personal to each of us 
how that compassion is going to get expressed. And I think it's so important to know that, what, and what I've learned, is that I have to and can only start where I am. I can only come into this present moment to the reality of the conditionality of who am I now? What is my capacity now? What, is my, what are my limitations now? to be a wise and compassionate person in this world. And I may not have any idea what that's going to look like, how that's going to manifest, how that's going to get expressed. If I, if, if I let go of my grand visions, my grand ideas, but stay right here connected to my own heart, to my own being, to the conditions that are right here, then I will know. Then I will know what to do. Or I may not know, but I can stay with the not knowing until the wisdom and the understanding of how to respond appropriately arises. It was such an important lesson for me to, again, through my practice and through my understanding, is to honor and respect what is happening right now and stay with that. Start where I am. And that would not have been the case out of my ideals and my expectations and my uh, uh, self-image about how this was supposed to happen, it's completely turned on its head. So I say this because it's so easy in this practice to have big ideals, to have a lot of ideals for ourselves, how we're supposed to be in the world. But, But for me, the practice always comes back to now, to now, and to be so honest and so respectful of what's here. Not only here for myself, but what's true for the person that I'm with or the people that I'm with or the situation that I'm with. As as we're here together, as we sit together, what's here that wants to be revealed What's here that can be helpful? Where's the wisdom right now in this moment? When I get out of my head, out of my ideas, the grasping, all the identity and the self-image about all that, what's here? How can I be helpful to myself and to the situation? And I really think it's so personal. It can take on so many shapes and forms. And we can judge others. We can have expectations of others to be a certain way in the world. But when we come really down to our own humanity and have compassion for that, then I think something can really start to happen when we can meet each other in this authentic place, in this true place together. So it's about time now. Uh, I did want to read one more poem before I end it. I have this poem, and I like this one from Mary Oliver, the Wild Geese poem. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours 
and I'll tell you mine. Meanwhile, the earth goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscape over the prairies, the mountains, the tall trees. Meanwhile, the wild geese high in the clear blue air are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the earth calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting over and over, inviting you to take your place in the family of things. Let's sit for just a second. Thank you for your attention. So it's 20 after 8. There'll be another sitting in about 25 minutes. And we'd really like to encourage you, please, to keep the silence this evening in respect for everybody here. As Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.